Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. I am your host and coach, Tyler Johnson. And whether you've tuned into this episode to elevate your mindset, your game, or just your day, you are in the right place. My guest this episode is an OG when it comes to mental performance in the MLB. He's going on his 14th year with the Pittsburgh Pirates as the director of mental performance. He's also worked at West Point as the master trainer in the Army Center for Enhanced Performance. Please welcome to the Elevate Podcast, Bernie Holiday. I'm doing great, TJ. It's exciting to be here and uh, looking forward to talking with you and, and sharing some of our, our, pa- our passions together. Yeah, yeah, excited to, to have you. I know you've spent time in professional sports, working with student athletes at the collegiate level quite a bit as well. Um, I guess to kind of give our listeners a little background on yourself, uh, curious to know what led you into kind of the, the field of mental performance uh, and what you do now. Sure. Yeah, my, my background is in sport and exercise psychology, really focusing on the, the high performance psychology side of things, the psychology of excellence and mental performance. I'm not a trained therapist. Uh, I'm not licensed to work with mental health or with mental wellness needs. I'm focusing more on that high performance side of things. And I guess it started back when I was a, a collegiate tennis player. And I took the game way too serious, took myself way too serious. And for four years, I tolerated it at best. Um, I remember at the end of every season thinking, you know what, this is my last season. I'm not coming back next year. I'm done. I don't want to play anymore. And then I'd somehow get myself back the next season. Then I'd play another one. I'd walk away that one. I'm not doing it again. I'm over it. Um, so I, I carried a lot of weight in collegiate tennis on my shoulders, and I didn't know how to how to let go of it. Um, I found myself going to the gym in the evenings of my freshman year and just jumping into some of the higher level pickup volleyball games going on. And that suddenly kind of became going out for the club team and then playing on the club team and then traveling with the club team. And I realized that through those four years, I hated my tennis experience and I loved my volleyball experience. Mm -hmm. I think at the end of it, I actually became a much better volleyball player than tennis player. And I was so passionate to get to practice. I was so excited to go work out on my own. And you had to drag me onto the tennis court. And I just found myself fascinated by why was my experience with tennis so much different than my experience with volleyball? And I realized that my mindset and that my attitude had a ton to do with it, as well as the level of expectation I brought to each and, and what I was focusing on with each. So that got me started into thinking about how the mind impacts um, the performance, how the mind impacts the motivation. And then I uh, got done my undergraduate degree with a, a degree in criminal justice with a minor in psychology. And I was working in the field, um, catching shoplifters in supermarkets. Mm-hmm. And I was shoplifter detective by day and teaching tennis at racket clubs um, to juniors and to adults in the evenings. Mm-hmm. And the same sort of feel, like I would tolerate my work going in, catching bad guys, trying to shoplift. But then every afternoon and evening, I was excited to get to the racket club, to be able to work with people who were trying to do something hard. They were excited to, to learn a new skill, excited to stay fit and to challenge themselves. And I found myself in this sort of like early life crisis. Like, what am I going to do yeah. um, with this degree that I'm probably not going to use in criminal justice? And uh, I had the chance to go to the Caribbean to be the head teaching pro at a resort in the Caribbean for a year. Okay. And that's when I went down there and I started reading books on this thing called sports psychology. I had no idea there was an academic field. I had no idea there was a professional discipline. I just knew that the mind mattered when it came to being able to perform at a consistently high level. Yeah. But once I realized there was an academic discipline of sports psychology, I started looking into it down in the Caribbean. I realized, you know what, this is kind of what I want to do. And uh, 
found a bunch of research and a bunch of applied techniques from a guy named Damon Burton. And I had no idea who Damon was, but I liked his stuff. And I looked him up and he was at the University of Idaho. And I called him up from down there and said, hey, I'd love to be a graduate student with you. And after we had a couple of talks, I applied and he let me in. And uh, I did my master's, my PhD with Damon at the University of Idaho and uh, never looked back. I mean, we can go further down how I got to the pirates, but that, that's sort of how I got into the field itself. Yeah, no, I like it. And I think the uh, to to tangent real quick on, on kind of your personal story of going from you mentioned kind of the expectations of tennis and then having fun at volleyball and, and you maybe thriving a little bit more in, in that environment. Um, as you kind of re- reflect upon that, as you just did, and then juxtaposition that a little bit with kind of what we see in youth sports these days, um, how important is it that you're having fun in, in what you're doing? I think fun is tremendous. I think fulfillment is more important than fun. And sometimes fulfillment isn't fun. You know, I think that the two can be sure. very different. Fair. Yeah. So yeah. as long as there's one or the other thing, is this fulfilling, this experience fulfilling, or is it fun? I mean, either way, yeah. it's good. But I guess if I were to look at it, you know, and this is something, again, I took from Damon Burton at, at the University of Idaho, are these three types of motivations. Um, you know, there's this play to win motivation. My job is to outperform you, to outrank you, to outbeat you, um, and to score higher than you. Um so it's all about social comparison, and I want to outperform and outcompare favorably to others. There's the, the play not to lose motive, which is my job is not to go out there and be the worst on the field. I don't want to be the worst on the court. I don't want to look like the, the, the least talented player. I don't want to be the last kid picked in gym class. And you're highly motivated to not be that guy. Right. Um, and I think that's where I was in tennis, and I think that's where a lot of junior players, they have those two motives. And they're playing to win, playing to win, playing to win until they reach a certain level of competition where that's not happening consistently. And then they start to, to worry more about playing not to lose. And they start worrying about comparing um, unfavorably to their peers, worrying about looking bad compared to their teammates, looking up, you know, being at the bottom of a list of rankings as opposed to the top. And that creates the stress and the frustration and the anger and the emotions. Um, but there's this third motive that I think I, I kind of figured out in my volleyball path. And I, I try to teach to younger kids now. So I call it play to PR. Hmm. And it's, sort of the self-comparison motive where every day I'm trying to PR my personal best from where I was yesterday or where I was last week or where I was last month. Am I continuing to challenge myself to get a little better than I was the last time I was out here? And that becomes the sort of different motivation, this play to PR mindset, which I think is a lot more stable and consistent across a long period of time, especially when you start going up level by level in competition. And you're not going to be able to win consistently. You're not going to be able to be at the top of the list consistently anymore. You better have another motive to tap into. And I think that's what volleyball provided me. And I think that's something that Youth sports, if you don't emphasize it early, uh, I don't think they ever get to that third motivation of playing to PR. It's all about playing to win. And then when you start to struggle, you shift the play not to lose. Yeah. I I like the perspective it gives. I mean, the comparison kind of creeps in with our our human nature. But uh, when you have a a directive like, you know, play to PR, it it gives it a little bit of direction. Um, I'm all for having a a healthy desire to be competitive and and to kick somebody's butt. And I think (laughs) you need some of that. But you also need to be able to have this this drive to see how good can I possibly be? Can yeah. I be better than I've ever been? And to kind of let that be the guiding force in, in why we pursue sport and what makes sport fulfilling. No doubt. And uh, so you spent almost a, a, about a decade in Major League Baseball. Is that right with the Pirates? This is my 14th season. 14th, so it's kind of surreal to think that. Well, yeah. Beyond wow. now. Um, I guess looking back at it, the field has come, you know, ways. Like I think, you know, like you said, I didn't know it was a field when I found it. And uh, 
it was very less talked about. Like I mentioned, when I was in professional baseball in the early 2000s, you sports psychology was around and Ken Revisas and, and, you know, and, and those people in the world and yourself got in there. And um, how far has it come since when you first got into the major leagues? It, what have you seen it and how has it evolved and how has it continued to uh, be maybe more integrated into what a team is doing? I think it's come leaps and bounds from where it was when I got in in 2010. Um, like you said, there was Ken Rabiza and Chad Bowling and a few others who were the heavy hitters in the mental performance field in Major League Baseball, probably about, you know, eight or nine guys. And we actually formed this group that I uh, always get the acronym wrong. It's like PB, PBG, the Professional Baseball Performance Psychology Group. Right. And there were seven of us. And we, we hung out in the hotel during the Major League Baseball winter meetings. And we talked about, you know, how can we grow mental performance? And I'm proud to say that, you know, that group of seven now is a group of over 70 um, that work in professional baseball and mental performance. So yeah. we've gone from it being taboo to it being, I want a guy or I want a gal, bring me somebody good to now I need a department. Yeah. So they're going out there hiring entire departments now, which is kind of fascinating, you know, and uh, if you're just a single individual organization, you're kind of at a, at a um, disadvantage at this point. It's grown that much. Sure. So I think it becomes a, you know, the haves and the have nots at some degree, you know, at first there was that stigma of, you know, I don't want to, you know, let my guard down and look like I'm inadequate and don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. But now it's like, Hey, these guys have an entire department. We don't have anybody. We got to, we got to catch up with these guys. We got to bring a department of mental performance specialists in. So it's been exciting to see that growth. See that growth. And I think, uh, kind of grown from maybe one to some of the teams have three to three to five people on staff taking care of major to all the minor leaguers. Is that right? Pretty much. Yeah. Three to five is probably the norm at this point okay. for the vast majority of the teams. Sure. And uh, what, uh, you know, working with the college student athletes as well. Um, we know we've had some guests that have also kind of experienced those things and um, professional athletes have different things connected to their performance contracts, money, and, and some of those things that our college athletes don't. Um, so they're always really looking, I think, from what I've learned is, can it give me an edge? Um, where I think sometimes in my experiences with more collegiate student athletes, sometimes they're looking for some things that, man, life is so hectic as a college student athlete and trying to navigate my world. I just need some things to help me get through the week and maybe through the game. <laughs> and then hopefully we'll, we'll figure out some more. Um, but what kind of differences have you observed with maybe for lack of better terms of grasping for tools in, in the quickness at which they might grasp and integrate those tools through your teaching. Yeah, I, I, I think between the collegiate athletes and the professional athletes, uh, your point about being pulled in multiple directions is probably a very real one. Um, I spent six years at the United States Military Academy at West Point working with Army athletics. And uh, you know they're not just getting pulled academically and physically, but they're getting pulled militarily as well. So sure. you know they go through four years with their gas gauge on empty mentally, physically, and emotionally, you know, they're basically running on fumes in all three of those areas and they still have to perform at the highest level. So right. I think for that group, it's really, you know, I always talk about self-talk, you know, we talk about, you know, positive self-talk or negative self-talk. And to me, you know, I, I want to focus more on effective self-talk. And when I define effective self-talk, I think it's, is your thought process on what's right in front of you and within your control. And that's it. That it doesn't, it could be negative. It could be emotionally driven it can be positive but if it's right in front of you and within your control then you're in a good headspace and i think when we see these guys at west point we see some of these college athletes 
their minds are way out in front of what I got to do next week, what I got to do next month. I got this big batch of tests coming up um, in two weeks from now. We've got to travel. We're going to be on the road um, three weekends in a row, and I'm going to fall behind in my classes. And suddenly their thoughts are not right in front of them and within their control. Their thoughts are three or four weeks out. Um, and, and just kind of bring them back into what's right in front of me and within my control. And, and let's kind of break that down and, and keep our focus there as much as possible. And then the other thing that um, my mentor, um, guy named Nate Zinzer from West Point, he was my supervisor there been there for like 20 plus years he always talked about you know hardcore stress requires hardcore recovery mm. and yeah. do you take your recovery as seriously as you take your work because we all put a ton of effort into work but we don't put a lot of effort into recovery yeah. so you know do you take the recovery as seriously as you take the work so i think with that group that's going to be pulling in many different directions can we really focus on how do i reacquire energy how do i restore energy do i have a way to hit pause and and be mindful or hit pause and and idle for a little while to help recharge the batteries and almost like kind of swipe off the apps that are open on your phone to get them all off of there. And I don't think as college athletes, we do that quite enough. We just want to work, work, work in, in multiple different directions. I think with the pro athletes, it's a lot more that single-minded pursuit and not doing too much. You know, I think what you'll often see with an over-motivated underachiever at that level is they'll finally have time to be, just 100% devoted to their sport. Their sport is now their job. They can be completely invested in it. And it's too much too often. And they end up breaking down physically or mentally because they're trying to do too much. Sure. It's almost learning that they can take a step back and kind of settle in yeah. and find what works for them. We had a recent guest a while back, I believe, can talk about the brought up the running on e the empty right and we we use the fuel tank as an analogy sometimes our fuel and what we've got in the tank and it made a good point that i think kind of emphasized that recovery was you know with this fuel tank analogy you think you can just go to a gas station fill up real quick and keep going right just quick fill up get going again or i think you know we're, we're starting to learn especially in in this field and perform when it comes to performance uh we're a little bit more like the tesla we need to kind of like sit and plug in for a while and not not go it's in charge there needs to be that that actual recharge um and not just a quick fill up it, can you expand a little bit more on just how just the mental and physical recovery is just so important when it comes to if we want to perform at our best and you know go after a pr day yeah, we, we talk a lot about that metaphor of on empty or being able to fill up the tank. And we, we think about it usually as physically, mm -hmm. but I think the mentally and the emotionally piece are just as important at, at making sure that we're starting to move that arrow up closer to F, up to closer to full on the mental and the emotional side. And I like to think about it as the way that we are with our, our phones, the way that we are with technology and social media. Um, it's almost like being at a, a red light in your car and you're stepping on the brake with your left foot still revving up the gas with your right foot and you're revving at 4,000 RPMs with the brake on still burning fuel and you're not getting anywhere. And I think that's how we can be throughout our, our days is we're just burning a lot of fuel mentally and emotionally. And there's a, a great technique that I, I, I've heard a lot about, learned a lot about. Andrew Uberman talks about it on, on Uberman Lab podcast, this idea of stillness. And really this concept of stillness is basically just shutting off all sensory emotion um, to the best of your ability, any sensory experiences around you, what you're seeing, hearing, feeling, experiencing, just shut it all down. He talks about going into a, a broom closet at work hmm. and turning off the lights and putting on um, sound deafening headphones and just breathing yeah. for five minutes. 
And that will reset the dopamine stores in your brain to be able to persist a little longer throughout the day. And taking these moments of stillness. Um, there's also a technique with this body scan where basically as you breathe and release your breath, you go from head to toe and just think about loosening your face, then loosening your shoulders, then loosening your biceps, then loosening your triceps, then loosening your forearms and hands. And you work head to toe in about a five-minute period. And again, sort of that reboost that energy and gets it back up there a little bit. And yeah, we're not going to be able to plug in and, and get back to full, but they, they've shown some of the, the science with uh, – blank on his name. Uh, but it's pretty fascinating that shows that if you're able to be yeah. very deliberate in this recovery restoration technique, this body scan or the stillness, you know, that half hour of that could equate to about an hour's worth of rejuvenation or restoration if you were to take a nap. So it is a little bit better of a way to to bring more energy back in in a more efficient way. For sure. I definitely have done the body scans, felt that. Uh, I probably need to try to do more of the full stillness and shut down like the Huberman closet, um, you know, but um, yeah, I think, and as we kind of wanted to ask you about, you know, meditation and mindfulness too, when it kind of comes to the stillness and some of those things that get tangent in, in there. Uh, I've been meditating for about eight years now. And um, when I tracked the behavior early on, I realized that if I wouldn't give myself at least five to 10 minutes to meditate, I would never give myself an hour to work out later in the day. <laughs> and and I was just kind of was this thing and some other athletes have kind of resonated. Like if you just give yourself that moment of stillness starts to give your self permission to put yourself first and to, and to almost prioritize. Um, do you see any other kind of side effects, symptoms from people that have kind of, you know, done some of those stillness exercises and, and benefits that maybe they've anecdotally shared about kind of what it's, opened up for maybe them i think what's what's opened my eyes to it in addition to what you talked about just giving yourself permission to take time for you and, and to sort of reset yourself um, is the actual practice of being able to detach from your own thoughts and emotions and just observe them with some distance um you know there's this idea of stimulus and response something happens to us and we react and I think what the idea of meditation does or this, this practice of stillness is it allows us to recognize there's this decision space in between the two, where it's not just something happens and I react, it's something happens and I have a moment to reflect and make a choice. And we had this choice space before I have to respond or react. And we always talk about, you know, do you play emotionally or do you play with emotion? And I think when players play emotionally, something happens they didn't like and they react emotionally to it. Yeah. Versus playing with emotion is something happens and I can experience the emotion and still make a choice that aligns with what I want to get accomplished or what my, my values are. So I think the, the side effect that I like isn't really as much a side effect as much as a primary goal of mine is to help our players realize. And this is probably a, a, a socialized belief that we all have is I need to act how I feel. Yeah. If I'm angry, I need to act angry. If I'm embarrassed, I need to act embarrassed. If I feel defeated, I need to act defeated. Um, or we need to act in a way that makes it go away. If I feel defeated, I need to make that go away by acting a different way. Or if I feel angry, I need to, to make the anger go away. But the whole time we're, we're distracted by the emotion and trying to react to that versus recognizing, okay, I can feel a feeling. I can think a thought. And in three minutes, I want to have a different feeling, a different thought. So let's not give them too much weight. Let's recognize that I've got this decision space now. What are my goals? And what are my values? You know, I value being out of my comfort zone and my goals are to really challenge myself by doing new things. Okay. Now what's the decision that allowed me to do that? Not to feel inferior and act on that inferiority feeling that I have. So I think with the meditation and with the, the, 
the stillness and, and that practice of mindfulness, it allows us to kind of widen that, that decision space. So it's not so knee jerk from something happens and I react. And we've got this wider space to kind of make that choice to take a second on feeling these feelings. I'm okay with the fact that I'm feeling feelings. I still need to make a choice based on what I value and what my goals are. Yeah. Uh, like that. The, uh, uh, it was Charlie Marr, one of those original seven back in the day. He was, yes. <laughs> so when I, I, I Bob Tewksbury, uh, Charlie, Chad, myself, okay. All right. Bo others. Bob's been on the podcast. Uh, Charlie, I've interacted with a, a few times. We had some common people we knew from our White Sox days. Um, but uh, he had told me a story, you know, a long time ago about just how, how Manny Ramirez was just really good at forgetting good or bad day, how it went really good at putting whatever at bat behind him and something that he always kind of stuck out from him. Um, is there a, a lesson that, or someone that you've observed, uh, you don't have to share names if it, to put anyone out there, but uh, a, a lesson in kind of that, putting the, the good or bad behind you and moving on. And like you said, moving to the next three minutes, whatever that feeling might be trying to get there um, that you're kind of like, wow, they, they do do it at a different level and maybe with a little less training. Well, I'll share a story that's not baseball, but it kind of, I think it really spoke to me. Um, we had a guy named Rory Markham come down to the Pirates to talk with our players back in like 2010 or 11. At that point, he was working his way up the UFC ranks, trying to earn a title fight, putting himself in that con contender role. And Rory came down for a couple of days and hung out with us. And then we would share stories. And then we had him speak with the players. So he sat with our minor league players. And here is this up and coming UFC fighter. And they asked him, have you ever been knocked out? And he goes, oh, yeah. You know, I've been knocked out on pay-per-view in front of millions of people. And they're like, how do you handle that? And it's like, what's that like? And he goes, it is demasculating, demoralizing, um, humiliating, embarrassing. You just feel so small and tiny. And he described it in such a, a powerful way. It gave everybody goosebumps. Yeah. Just you know, Then the second question they asked was, how do you ever get back in the octagon to fight again after experiencing that kind of failure? And he goes, well, he goes, I've kind of landed on this ritual. You know, I'm feeling this, these feelings of inferiority and, and this worry and this anxiety up in the locker room before the fight. And this is after getting knocked out. And this is my next fight several months later. And I'm starting to think, oh my God, this could happen again. What if I get knocked yeah. out? This could be really embarrassing and this could ruin my career. And he goes, but then music starts playing. And I start walking into the stadium and the lights are going down and I can hear my, my walk-up song and I get down to the referee. He checks my Vaseline, checks my cup, makes sure I'm wearing it. And that's when I tell myself, I go, you know what? You could get knocked out tonight. You could knock somebody else out tonight, but you can knock somebody else out tonight, tonight. And, and that's what gets me back into it. I know that I can. I've put in the work, the haze in the barn. And I, I'm, it might go good. It might go bad, but I know that it can go good. And that's something that, um, you know, me and some of our volleyball staff at Pitt talked a lot about, just this idea of, you know, there are no guarantees in sport. You're going to step in there. You could get embarrassed. You can embarrass your opponent, but you know that because of the training, you can embarrass your opponent. And it's that can that I think provides people that that confidence to step back in there after defeat or to be able to flush and say, you know what? I guess another example would be um, there was a great match played between Andre Agassi and Roger Federer at the U.S. Open Finals. And I happened to catch their interviews on, on video afterwards. And Roger, after he beats Andre Agassi, two future Hall of Famers, and they go, Roger, you played great. You won. You beat Andre Agassi. You're number one in the world. How'd you do it? He goes, you know, well, I happened to play my best in the finals as usual. 
And then he giggled embarrassingly because he realized that he said that out loud and he didn't mean to say it. He's a very humble champion, but to say that I played my best in the finals as usual kind of talks about how they think of their success. You know, that this is something that I trained to do. It should happen. It can happen. And it normally does happen. But then it's interesting because they they interviewed Andre Agassi right after that. Again, another future Hall of Famer, um, number two or three in the world at that time, and just lost the finals. And they said, Andre, Roger played great. What do you got for us? And he goes, you know what? Roger played way too good today. And just the emphasis on today and the way that that today stood out, I think, as I heard it is, you know what? He beat me today. I can't wait to see him next weekend in the finals. Next weekend's different. Let's go. You know, he might beat me. I beat. I might beat him, but I know I can beat him next weekend. So he was better than I was today. And I think that's such a powerful thing to look at your your failures and your your struggles and your your setbacks as short term, temporary, and changeable. You know, I blew it today. I wasn't good today. I screwed up this at bat. And next at bat, it might go good. It might go bad, but I know that it can go good. So let's get this next at bat going. So I guess if I were to merge the two stories, that kind of captures what I've seen and what I like to try to to promote with some of the athletes. Definitely. I like that. I played college defensive back. So we had to have a, you know, the short memory was always preached upon <laughs> when, when you get, uh, you get toasted once in a while. It was uh, Ted Lasso talks about the goldfish. You know, yeah. Like eight seconds. Yep. What'd you say? <laughs> uh, well, uh, something else I wanted to ask about, especially, you know, it, you talked about how your, your time in major league baseball and how things have evolved, but uh, you know, maybe some coaches or student athletes that are listening, what are some maybe, easy ways that uh, a coach could integrate some stillness or some mental skills into, uh, you know, the 90 minutes practice plan that they might have. And if they were, you know, to spend five, 10 minutes, what's maybe some of the best things that they should leverage that, that time with. Well, if we were to go specifically down that route, I think something that, uh, you know, I learned from John Mayer, um, not the musical artist, but the volleyball coach, John Mayer, um, LMU beach volleyball coach, former um, AVP player and, um, rock star dude in general, but you know I've, I've had the opportunity and the privilege to be able to work alongside him and his his club for the last four years now. And what I've realized is beach volleyball is really good, probably among the more progressive sports at bringing the mental game into the physical practice arena or the match day. And, and what what I've seen with John and, and some of that those clubs is they start off their practice with, with what they call mindset, which is just about four minutes where they sit in a circle. And somebody walks them through, usually the assistant coach walks them through a guided meditation where we talk about this, notice what we're feeling and notice our bodies and notice that this is what we've got to compete with today, or we've got this body and these emotions to practice with today. Let's accept that. Let's focus on what is our intention for today? Um, what do we want to intend to do as, as we move into our practice setting? Um, what do we want to feel connection-wise with our partners when we're on the court today playing? And then, you know, what's something we're grateful for is we're sitting out in the sand about to go through a four-hour, a three-hour practice. And, okay, now let's go. Let's practice. And then at the end of practice, there would be this moment where we'd sit down and we'd either do the same sort of thing, reflecting more, you know, taking inventory of what went well, kind of playing a mental mulligan of what what didn't go so well and how would we want to change it next, next practice. And then maybe even a journaling activity, just talking maybe three ups from the practice, two downs and some adjustments, and then one big takeaway from what I learned from today. So I think those are ways that that John, at least, did his staff kind of bookended it. You know, right before we went on, let's make sure that they had intention, use like this intention-based yeah. um, visualization. And then at the end, it was more of a, a self-reflection of um, strengths, things that worked well, things that we need to adjust from, and then what was a big lesson learned or a big takeaway we can stick in our back pocket, carry forward for the next one. And I thought that was a really cool way to do it. And then as I started to get to know the volleyball world, um, 
they are really good at doing that kind of thing, setting up intention through mindsets at the start of practice, finding ways to self-reflect in effective ways after practice. So you don't just go home and, and stew on it. You know how a lot of athletes think is they can go out there and put together 95 quality reps in the cage. And then they sit around for the next 15 hours and think about the five reps that went down the drain yeah. and how terrible they are because they're, they're a lousy athlete and they failed those five times out of 95 yeah. attempts. You know, so to kind of balance that out with a, that three, two, one, what are three ups, what are two downs, what's one takeaway, kind of keeps it a little bit more even keeled from one practice to the next. I think I observed, done, and heard other coaches, you know, do the exercise at the inner practice of like, how'd it go? Most kids will usually tell you the thing they did poorly, you know, not, not they're going to talk about the five, not the 95, right? If a coach asks, and it is important that the coaches, I think, I think Dr. Colleen Hacker, you know, catch them doing it right, catch them doing it well. Um, Absolutely. and just, you know, I, I love that taking that time. It's, it's, it's interesting cause you, you know, I come around a lot of football guys too, where you get a lot of military much, you know, kind of thing in. And it's like, that's something the military always does is this debrief, you know, this quick reflection on what they did. And, and it's so powerful. I think, uh, to get to kind of shift things right. Um, I love all the tangible things you said. That's a great, great way of coaches listening to, uh, you know, in not very many minutes to create a lot of effectiveness. But one of the things I heard you talk about, it's also one of my favorite things, uh, gratitude. You mentioned the, the little moment of gratitude they have in there. Um, how can gratitude play a powerful role when it comes to maybe uh, shifting our mindset and using it as a regular tool? I think a couple of things jump out at me. The first is, you know, there's the old saying in coaching and even implying that the best way to get yourself out of a rut is to think about somebody else. You know, it's the more we get into this rut and the more we start to struggle and scuffle, the more we think about ourselves and we kind of isolate from other people and we just worry about us. So I think this sort of gratitude exercise to think about what am I grateful for? Who am I grateful for? Um, what do I appreciate? and Who do I appreciate? It, it gets us out of ourselves. So I think it allows us to take a moment and see the world and our experiences in baseball or whatever as in, in a bigger perspective. So it, it gets us out of ourselves. It adds perspective. And there's some science that, that's kind of interesting that shows that gratitude not only makes us feel better, but it's a performance enhancer. You know, it, it creates, you know, a better biochemistry in the body to be able to elevate our performance to that, that more consistently better levels. So there's even that biochemical experience of, of gratitude that allows us to play a little bit better more often. Yeah. I like that. The, uh, as we wrap up, uh, you know, as you uh, reflect back a little bit, but uh if you were to go back to earlier, you know, when you're maybe at Idaho or getting into working with athletes uh, earlier in your career uh, on those racquetball and tennis courts, uh, what's some advice you would you would give to yourself to someone in the field that uh, as you get into working with athletes and coaches, looking back, what's what's a piece of advice you might have wish you knew or could go back and share with yourself? <laughs> Probably my hardest lesson learned is this is going to be kind of philosophical, but it's to, to know what you're willing to get fired over. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think um, Michael Gervais calls them first principles. Other people call them core convictions or primary values. But like, what are the things in your life or what are the things in your sport that you feel so convicted in that you're not willing to budge on? Because we want coachable athletes. We want guys to be able to be willing to be coached up. But at the same time, especially as we get more, into our careers and more into veteran status is we should, we better have some first principles or some core convictions or what I call, you know, these things that we're willing to be fired over. Yeah. And uh, because when we're tested, 
those are the first things we start to question and second guess. Um, there was a time when I was with the Pirates in 2012, and uh, a lot of my ideas leaked out into the press under my GM's name. He took the heat for it, and the media, nationwide media, blasted him. I mean, they they crucified him. They, it was it was horrible to read all the terrible things they were saying about him and these ideas he had when nobody knew they were my ideas that, that they were destroying. And not only did he lead effectively through that by rallying the, the troops and, and keeping our, 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 tight, our circle tight and supporting us and checking in on us and growing us when he's being raked across the coals. Um, but he made us stronger as a group through that process. And the embarrassing thing is when I was young, it was you know 11 years ago, I, I was still more embarrassingly older than I should have been at that point. But um, what did I do every night? I went home and I Googled my name to see if these things were be connected with me. Yeah. yeah how, how selfish is that? Like that's, that's embarrassing to say right now that, that that was my first reaction was to worry about me when here's my leader taking the heat for me and making sure that I'm okay and building a better cohesive team because of this. And I'm worried about me. So as I went into the next couple months, all those ideas that I felt very strongly before they ended up in the media. Now I'm starting to question, like, maybe I shouldn't teach that anymore. Maybe that's a dumb idea. Maybe they're right. And that, that doesn't relate to high performance. And maybe I should remove that from my curriculum. And I started second guessing and getting wishy-washy about all these things that I once believed very strongly in. And through that process and through Kyle's mentorship um, with me through that process, I now realized that they're my non-negotiables. I'm now willing to get fired over those things. If the GM or the uh, president says, hey, Bernie, we'd love to have you back, but you can't talk about these things anymore. we got to get these out of your curriculum. Um, you can talk about everything else, but not these. I'd have to shake his hand and say, so long, you know, goodbye. So I think it's as you start to know yourself and know who you are as an athlete or as a professional, you got to really come to grips with, you know, what are those non-negotiables that you're willing to be fired over? And are you willing to stand your ground and, and be fired if it comes to that? And I think I couldn't in 2012. I probably can now. A great story. Thank you for, for sharing and being stepping a little vulnerable story too. I, you know, what did that do? I guess follow up with uh, your guys' relationship with the GM years later on. Uh, what's the what's our relationship now? Yeah. Well, how, how how did that? You know, what did that? How did it? I'm guessing it's good, but uh, yeah, he's, yeah. he's probably the most influential um, mentor in my life to this point. Um, we went through a leadership change in about 2019, in which case uh, we brought in a new senior and executive leadership group. And um, Kyle was moved out at that point, but he lives about three miles that way. And we still get to have lunch and talk and awesome. um, and connect. So, and I think to your point, uh, if I were to say one more thing, there's strength and vulnerability. And, awesome. you know, I, I think that vulnerability is probably a performance enhancer as much as gratitude is. So one of the things I would say to my younger self is, don't be afraid to be vulnerable. Their strength and vulnerability, especially when you try new things, do new things, put your neck out there and risk failing and risk looking foolish. That vulnerability is a very powerful performance enhancer. So I'm glad you brought that word up. Mm -hmm.